Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Central bankers, it seems, are increasingly dubious about the impact of monetary policy. Maybe, just maybe, the economy can't be stabilized just by moving interest rates up and down. Maybe fiscal policy is the only way forward, but many governments don't want to get into debt. But modern monetary theory says they don't need to. And there's one cause that could be used to try modern monetary theory out, solving the climate crisis. That's today on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. So Larry Randall Gray, uh, one of the proponents of modern monetary theory, has suggested that MMT should be applied to create a Green New Deal, a reincarnation perhaps, or maybe not, of uh, of Roosevelt's New Deal, uh, which of course was after the Great Depression. Randall Gray is proposing that our response to climate change can be funded by government following MMT principles. And maybe this is a good example of how we can try out MMT because we have the extinction rebellion folk helping to heighten the awareness of the uh, of the, the the state of the planet and whether you agree or disagree with their approach right now you'd have to agree that they have got climate change back on the agenda at a time when in the uk at least nobody seems to be talking about anything but brexit but steve a green new deal let's before we talk about that let's go back to Roosevelt's New Deal, because that's where he's taken the name from, and it's uh, it's not necessarily a good name to take, is it? Because although Roosevelt built dams and invested in infrastructure and tried to help farmers, he did it whilst making cuts in other areas, in cutting government salaries and, and pensions, for example. Um, in the end, it turned out he did vastly increase government spending, but his plan was still to run a balanced budget, wasn't it? He was still, a, in a way, still a fiscal conservative. Yeah, but uh, this is a bit like one of my favourite lines of, of all time in, a, in, in uh, a music song is by John Lennon, life is what happens when you're busy making other plans. And right. Roosevelt may have planned to run, uh, you know, do a, a balanced budget or fin- financing New Deal using taxes, but that's not what happened. Uh, and in fact... I think, I think the whole case is actually a strong empirical argument in favour of MMT because both effects, actually all three effects, the, the two effects they talk about, one that I talk about, uh, turn up in the data. And that is that, first of all, um, the 1920s, what do you think government policy was in the 1920s? Oh, to run a surplus. Indeed. I mean, that, Indeed. Yeah. And they were successful. They ran a surplus pretty much of 1% of GDP all the way through the uh, 1920s. And the, the philosophy behind that is that, you know, in the, we hear the same thing. We heard the same thing from Cameron and Osborne. Uh, we still hear it out of the European Union that this is responsible saving for a rainy day. Well, mm. it was followed by a hurricane. Uh, of the Great Depression. <laughs> and the, the MMT can give an explanation for why that's the outcome. And that is that the fundamental accounting identity behind MMT is that if you divide the world into your world or your economy, even your own family, into two sectors, um, then the deficit of one sector is the surplus of the other because at the aggregate level, expenditure is identical to income. 
if I right. if I spend money buying your new microphone off you, um, then money my account goes down by, you know, let's say I try to bargain it down to eight hundred quid. Um, my account goes down by eight hundred. You'll go by precisely eight hundred. So one person's expenditure is another's income. Now at the micro level, and this is where mainstream economics goes goes wrong, and certainly mainstream politicians go wrong. They believe that they can save money. Uh, as as this thing which strengthens the entire system. So the idea about government running a surplus is that it'll make us all stronger. No, because the government net revenue is the difference between what it taxes the rest of the economy and what it spends on the rest of the economy. And if the government is is taxing, as it was in the 1920s, 1% of GDP more than the rest of the economy, then the rest of the economy is running a deficit of precisely 1% of GDP. Yeah. And there are two ways they can respond to that. One is to spend less, and so GDP goes down uh, because you, you literally are taking money out of circulation. Even if you think in terms of Milton Friedman's velocity of money argument, money times velocity of money being the nominal GDP, uh, yeah. be- because the money stock is falling. Uh, and it, like if you if you have a GDP, uh, if your deficit is one percent of GDP and your money stock uh, is turning over twice per year, so your velocity of money is two then that surplus of 1% means you reduce the money stock by 2%. Yeah. Now, that means that unless people spend more rapidly, the economy is going to slow down. And, of course, if the government's taking money out of your books, what do you do? You spend more slowly as well. Yeah. The, the, the double, that's a double whammy. Or, and this is the, the, the third point, the part that I focus upon, you go and borrow money from your friendly local bank. And that, of course, the, and this is another major point of MMT, uh, money created by banks makes no change to the net financial position of the borrower. So if you borrow money from a bank, you get a, you know, you might get an extra a thousand pounds, but you also owe the bank a thousand pounds. There's no change in your net financial assets. So you try to sort that out by going along and going off to your local stockbroker and buying some stocks that are recommended to you by the bloke in the in the elevator. And of course, that's exactly what happened during the 1920s. So mm. we, we had a, a, a part potentially in consequence of the government running a surplus. Therefore, necessarily, the private sector ran a deficit. And its response was to get into what we call the roaring 20s. Everybody was gambling on rising share prices, which worked until people stopped borrowing money and the whole damn thing collapsed into the Great Depression. Mm. That's, that's stage one. And then in that situation, um, Roosevelt may have wanted to uh, finance the whole thing by, uh, by taxation, increased taxation. In fact, the government deficit went from uh, a surplus of 1% to a deficit of 5 Okay. Yeah. So in, and historically, that was huge because the, the deficits that big hadn't happened except during times of war previously. Right. But, I mean, that, that should be a good thing then by that argument, shouldn't it? If the, if the government was running a deficit, then that's more money swilling around in the economy. But uh, but but it didn't work, did it? I mean, no, it, no, it, it did work. To... It, it did work because oh, right. that, that reversed what was going on with the private sector. Because if you look at the private sector and say what was happening uh, in their situation, credit, which is the annual – I, I define credit as the as the rate of the the rate of change of debt over time and so credit on an annual basis went from in the uh, 1921 credit was about one percent of gdp uh, in response to you know i'd argue potentially partially in response to the government running a surplus of that sustained period and it's the longest period of a surplus the american government's ever run uh credit rose because people were borrowing money to make up for the fact that the amount of money in the account was falling and then to boost themselves they were buying shares uh, you, you had the credit went from 1% up to 7.5% and almost hit 10% in 1928. And this is when Calvin Coolidge came out and said, 
1930 is going to be a fabulous decade. Uh, well, in that point, that's when the bubble burst and credit went from almost 10% of GDP in 1928 down to a depth of 9%, minus 9% of GDP in 1933. And that was the absolute depths of the Great Depression. So in, in, in what then happened was partially because of the New Deal, which was deliberate government policy, but also because government tax revenues collapsed. The government went from a, a surplus of 1% to a deficit of 5 and that, along with the infrastructure projects of, under, under the New Deal, stimulated the economy and turned the unemployment around, which, which peaked. Unemployment went from 0% in 1929, literally recorded at zero. And there were, uh, it was the people out of work divided by the, um, the people registered as unemployed, divided by the uh, population or the, the available workforce, was rounded out to zero. It went to 26%. It then fell to 11 uh, during the New Deal. And in 1936, uh, Roosevelt was persuaded by, again, the attitude you're talking about, we should be paying us for the taxes. So by increasing taxes, uh, he cut the, the deficit from 5% of GDP back to zero once more. And in response to that, the private sector, rather than going and borrowing from the banks this time, which was the 1920s response, they started deleveraging again, paying off their debt. And the credit went negative. You had government spending going from 5% of GDP, net spending 5% to zero. You had credit going from 1% to about minus 1.5% of GDP. Right. Recipe for disaster. Unemployment rose from 11% to 20%. Yeah. And, yeah, that, yeah. That's, that, and that was what, that's called the Roosevelt recession. So all, the, all these lessons uh, that MMT makes, uh, you can find in the 1920s data. And, and this is why I think the, the, the argument that it's a Green New Deal is a good analogy. We just need to explain people actually happened during the New Deal. And it yeah. was fundamentally the MMT idea the government spends much more than it takes back in taxation. Well, and, and, and then that 5% figure. So Randall Ray is saying under the Green New Deal, uh, let's take 5% of GDP um, and, uh, you know, let's use that to, on initiatives which are going to basically help save the planet. Yeah, and and that's and that's of the scale of the great of the, of the of what happened during the Great Depression. If you look, mm. actually, in, in fact, Randall's being conservative on that front because if you take a look at the scale of what I can what you can call the Obama stimulus with the Obama administration going into panic mode with when the financial crisis hit in two thousand and eight, the government deficit hit ten percent of GDP. Right now, so so these these even what Randall's persuaded is just suggesting as a Green New Deal is half the scale of what was done to rescue the economy during 2008. So his point is, I mean, the, the question is, how far can you go before you hit inflation? I mean, that's the, uh, I guess that's the big, uh, um, you know, response that you could get from increasing, in effect, increasing the money supply uh, by so much. But uh, that's where the, that's where they said, well, okay, we'll use taxation as the tool to try and prevent inflation. That's the only reason, in fact, under MMT, why you have taxation, isn't it? It just becomes uh, the, the moderating tool to uh, to try and stop runaway inflation. Yes, yeah, it's, it's reversing what's happening with the, with the um, if, you, if you're pumping too much money into the economy, then you pump it out using an increase in the taxation rate and yeah. you know, other policies there as well. So I think in that sense, the, 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 the logic is sound. It's the question of whether uh, that's going to be sufficient. And the, the other um, thing which I which I think about really the political side of this, uh, to actually persuade people that you need to spend huge amounts of money, you need some an existential threat. So I, I think 5% is a good start uh, and it would be a way of 
you know, establishing the infrastructure and financing you know, private corporations to innovate in alternative ways of producing energy as well. But yeah. uh, this is an existential threat, in my opinion, and, and 5% ain't nowhere near enough, but you won't get beyond 5% until people realise it's an existential threat. So uh, who does it, though? If it's government money, I mean, you talked about uh, involving the private sector there, because you don't want central planning in all of this. That doesn't sound too healthy, does it? You you just increase government uh, spending and then the government just employs lots of people and we all, all of a sudden we find, you know, a vast increase in people working in the public sector. Uh, but And yet, you know, this, this is something else that uh, uh, Randall Ray is talking about as well, a job guarantee program until the economy picks up. Um, you know that you you basically guarantee because that's the other factor. I mean that that's the main objective, isn't it? Of MMT is utilize resources effectively, including labour. So make sure everyone's got a job. Yeah, they're saying that uh, it, it's a, a very. Uh, I mean, if you think about the way we control inflation right now, it's by increasing the unemployment rate, and then you dump people on 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 a, on a scrap heap. And mm. particularly, you and I've got experience of the Australian situation and the and the UK experience, and the unemployment benefits. They're actually penalties. They're actually penalizing penalizing you for being out of work. When at the same time, as MMT argues, it's uh, in that situation, it would be a systemic reason why you're out of work, not not you your own behavior and so it, it's it, 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 it's it, you know the, but but coming back to the whether it has to be entirely public service employees um you have there are some elements of the of the economy i want to be done by the government sector so for example uh building roads or building large-scale infrastructure uh if you wanted to cover the entire country uh, as, as for example you would say in a broadband network then you're better off having that done either by the government or the or the private sector being pushed into it collectively by the government which is what happened in south korea uh and and therefore you don't have you know two or three sets of optical fibers running down the same hole connecting different customers at the end it's simply a wasteful way of doing it you, you get economies of scale out of doing it once uh, at, a, at a high level of infrastructure. And as I've said, it could be done by the government, which is potentially badly, and, we, and uh, we've seen instances of that. But it can also be done by the private sector, as it was in South Korea, under the pressure from the government, which said to the telecommunications companies, you can operate so long as collectively, I don't care how you do it, you make sure everybody in the country has a T1 connection. But if you've got the government pumping money in, if the, if the government is expanding the money supply because it's in effect creating money through MMT, it's basically oh. running a, a debt and no one cares about that too much because that's, you know, the, the, the way MMT works uh, with, the, with the control on, you know, inflation and the objective that you've got to use resources uh, carefully. But if you've got all the extra money, which is in the economy, so the economy is doing well, we're seeing growth, so the private sector is going to grow too. The private sector is going to say, "Oh, look, there's some smart people working in the public sector. Let's uh, let's uh, let's give them jobs." How do you get over that problem where the private sector then starts to take over more control, and you just don't have the resources in the in the public sector? Aren't you always going to have the issue that, and I guess we do anyway, where you know in good times jobs are going to the private sector, in bad times they go to the public sector, and uh, how do you get the the quality control and consistency, particularly if you're doing something like you know, a, a long-term project to try and tackle climate change. Well, this is why I say it's got to be seen as an existential threat because if you get at the point it's just seen as a, another way of making a bit of money, courtesy of government spending, 
Uh, and by the way, one more little thing I should mention to those who don't know it, there's what's called Koleski's profit equation, uh, which says what's, what, are the, what are the defining elements of profit? And one of those defining elements is government spending exceeding government taxation. That tends to end up in the, in the coffers of the, of the uh, corporations. Uh, it's a major source of their profit. So they mm. will rise. You're quite right about that. Um, but the, the question of poaching, uh, nobody attempted poach during the Second World War. Because you you, know, you you went where your duty was seen to be, and then any corporations were getting in there and trying to poach and take away key staff from the government sector. There'd be a, a knock on the door from a bloke wearing a, a few stars on his shoulder, uh, saying, uh, "Keep on doing this, you're going to you're going to get shut down." Right. So it takes. But we're not going to reach that stage again, though, are we? I mean, yes, we, we are. I- well, yes, right, but we we're not going to reach it. We're not going to reach it in a hurry, though. No, we're going to reach no, it. No. We're going to reach it when it's way too late. So yeah, if we, exactly. if we are looking at this and saying, look, there's an awareness of this issue now. Maybe uh, MMT is starting to gain some traction and some recognition. So maybe, just maybe, in five years' time, people could seriously be talking about a plan. They're not going to be talking about it as though we're at war, though, are they? No, They're going to okay. say, how how do we implement it? in the scenario that we have today yeah. we see it as being important and one of those issues is going to be how do we keep the coordination of this happening uh when we are going to have the private sector trying to pull away jobs that are going to be better paid for, for doing something which might be you know completely unrelated to yeah, saving but, the planet but the, the first thing is going to be that whole question of legitimacy because the, the, the big uh pushback that's come uh, to everybody talking about you know saving the planet how do we pay for it <laughs> i find that mm. it, 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 people only ask how do you pay for it if they don't believe we're going to lose the planet because if you don't believe the planet nobody nobody argues okay? yeah existential that's why i say when you're right we, we won't be seeing it as an existential threat for at least a decade we're all going to die in 10 years, but at least we're going to die in surplus. Yeah, that's right. That's, <laughs> that's um, the, uh, which is a nonsense argument, isn't it, obviously? It is a nonsense argument, but for, well, until you see it as an existential threat, that nonsense argument works with people. And mm. they say, you can't do it, we can't afford it. Well, you see Randall saying we can afford it, and MMT saying we can afford it. Uh, we can use MMT, what we know about government financing, to say let's run a deficit of 5% of GDP, and with part of, a major part of that deficit, let's build, start building the infrastructure to do decarbonize the economy so you'd be looking right. at solar wind uh, right. but my but my question was how do you do that in a coordinated fashion unless you have the control unless you have an element of central planning which i don't think people are going to be accepting a great deal where you're saying yeah well a lot of these jobs have got to stay in the public sector somehow this, this, how are you going to stop that poaching by the private sector this, to try this is, and create think, breakfast cereal toys or you know other things which are completely meaningless i think that's where uh, you analogy is not with uh, the green new deal but with nasa because when, when kennedy made the claim about we're going to get a man on the moon within within 10 years and of course they did it within nine um mm. that uh, that was an ent- entirely government uh driven venture it would yeah. never have happened with the private sector alone at the time it's now potential to have it happen because the groundwork has been laid by the private sector the government's uh, initial massively loss losing initiatives that made it possible to build rockets which could take people to the moon um, so you'd be, you'd be at that stage you couldn't poach anybody out of nasa for quids using an Australian expression, because it was such an incredibly exciting thing to be doing. So in, in that situation, um, 
And particularly the same thing with the Green New Deal. If you said we're going to finance the Green New Deal, there are plenty of people and plenty of companies and plenty of young people out there as well that say, right, I'm into this. And forget about trying to poach them. They're not there for the money. They're there for the, for the planet. So I don't think the poaching is a major issue, uh, even, in the le- even before the whole thing is seen as an existential crisis. But the thing is, how do, what, how do you actually go about making it effectively? So do you have an entirely government-based or, or do you have something which is where the government finances private organisations to do it and then you have the danger of those private organisations gaming it? And how is that money created? Because we do have, and last time we spoke about this, someone commented that, uh, you know, I was talking about uh, about bonds being issued and being told that's not the way it works. Well, that's not the way it works in, uh, you know, in, in pure modern monetary theory. But in the way it works currently is that if the government uh, is, uh, is in debt, then um, bonds are issued. And they're bought on the private market, and then if there's if felt like there's a need to um, to expand the money supply through quantitative easing, that's when the the central bank buys back those bonds, which is you know several steps involved in that process. But it's all I, quite I, functional. That it, it does actually that is actually how it, it it can work that way. It doesn't have to work in that cumbersome fashion. That- well, I mean, neither is going to be my next question. Does it have to work that way? Because then, of course, you start throwing in the question of interest rates into all of that, and is that an you know is that an unnecessary complication? Because you've got the central bank. Uh, saying, well, okay, you know, the the interest rate is going to fluctuate, and that and that becomes a another part of the equation. Do you need that, well, or do you do, do you know? Could you just ignore the role of the central bank, for example? Do we need to worry about because we know monetary policy isn't working terribly well? Not so do we fix do we fix an interest rate and forget about it? Is my question, I guess. No, definitely not. Because uh, I mean, again, if you have a collapsing economy, which is what they had back in the Great Depression, uh, then then uh, and the negative interest rates when they're set are only applying to the reserve accounts of the banks at the central bank. You can't get negative uh, interest rates on private banks because especially back in the Great Depression, before there was any thought of such a thing as electronic money, uh, those negative rates would mean people would be marching up to the banks to pull their money out in cash and that would be the end of the banking system. So monetary policy is ineffective in that situation. But what monetary policy as a way of creating the money needed to, to finance the government deficit right but if but if but if the government is spending a lot so you've got this this deficit so the economy is looking healthy uh you've got this concern about inflation you've got two people then concerned about inflation you've got the government and then you've got the central bank the central bank's going to say oh there's a lot more money swilling around now we've got to be very concerned about inflation we're going to push interest rates up so a chunk of that money which has been created by the government the government is then going to have to spend spend on interest rates, which means that then it has to create more money to pay those Which it can rates. do, and this is actually the point of the when MMT gets criticised for doing consolidating the Treasury and the central bank into one, one blob called the government. I'm slightly critical of that, but I can understand the overall logic because it says if you look at the government as having two wings, one of which issues bonds and the other which buys bonds, and then the one that... Uh, that, that uh, that uh, buys the bonds, uh, creates the money at the same time, then the interest issue within the government itself is irrelevant because just as the government can create the money uh, to, to buy the bonds, it can also create the money to pay for the bonds. Yeah, but what and, does that achieve? What do, I mean, why do that? Why why yeah, worry about that? Why, yeah. why go through the bond process? Why well, not just this, this, put this, them, create the money and stick it in a government bank account somewhere? This is, this is a quick uh, reminder to anybody who's travelled to Scotland and been to an ATM and pulled out some 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 pounds out of the uh, out of their account and they find themselves holding Scottish pounds. Yeah. Uh, and now Scottish pounds uh, again because the, and that is a, a liability of the of the government sector. What's the asset backing it? Is it bonds? No. In fact, it's a little thing called a consul. 
And I would like to have one of these little things because they're rather valuable. It's a sheet of paper, which you could print on a photocopier, which has a face value of 100 million pounds. And that little pieces of paper, I know how many there are, about maybe about 10 or five or 10, sit in the Bank of England. And that is the matching asset for the money created as a liability that enables those notes to be created in Scotland. It is just accounting. It is simply saying, we're going to give this piece of paper a nominal value of, a million, of 100 million, make 10 of them, and then issue a trillion dollars worth of, you know, 100, issue a billion dollars worth of, uh, of pound notes in Scotland, and then let that circulate up there. So in a sense, because money is fundamentally a promise, uh, and, and you're getting the promise of the institution which governs your country, uh, that, which, which you can meet in its own currency, there's no problem for it in financing all that. I'm still confused about how the central bank is adding to this picture because if, if money is created and you've got this green project that you want to push ahead with, you want to use that money, and I then, you know, you in a way, it really doesn't matter what the interest rate is, but it's no. just that if the interest rate is high, and it will go high the more money you create. Not necessarily. Uh, it depends on the overall circumstances. I mean, um, the, it, 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 it come down to what causes inflation. And the, the classic neoclassical, Milton Friedman is now too much money chasing too few goods. Uh, it's actually can, is, is more likely to be the, the, the post-Keynesian argument that it's competition over the distribution of income and prices in, in the post-Keynesian world is seen as a means by which corporations can claw back some of the surplus. If there's a wage rise, they put up prices to respond to the wage rise and therefore hang on to their share of profits. So if, if you mm. don't have that, if you, if you again have the type of compact that the Australian Labor government tried to do under Hawke and Keating, largely failed, but this is their objective, uh, was to have a, a, a worker management uh, agreement uh, to have not to have to have wage restraint at the same time as corporations invested, they got the wage restraint. They didn't get the corporate investment happening, unfortunately. But isn't there a danger that look the the government can you know can afford to pay whatever the interest rate is uh, because um, because they've got you know an endless supply of money to a point. Uh, whereas the private sector doesn't have that luxury that um, people are just going to buy, the government is just going to end up um, issuing bonds and, and them being bought by the by the central bank and the private sector is not going to be able to uh, uh, invest in bonds or, or have their, you know, their own bonds sold. I mean, wow. Isn't there a danger that you, you, you're creating this money, you're going to push interest rates up and you're going to find all of a sudden, uh, you, you know, you're, and it's almost like the crowding out argument in a way. It, isn't it? And, and that, that's one thing which again falls in the, the neoclassical camp and empirically massively contradicted by the data. What you actually tend to find when you say what was the impact of an increase in government bond issue uh, it's it, it, and government is often an increase in private sector activity as well. Because first of all, the, the government actually is actually creating additional money, turns over in the economy and as part of what sources the profits of corporations to begin with. And then uh, because the government's investing in something like, for example, the, um, uh, rolling out the, um, the freeway across America, well, you need fast food, you need petrol stations, so you need all sorts, of, you need towns, you need hotels, et cetera, et cetera. So the government spending that money leads to the private sector also spending that money. So mm. it, it, is not, it is not a zero-sum game in that case when you can expand the money supply and as you can expand it in multiple ways. You can do it through the private the government doing it by spending more than it gets back in taxation and by the, by the bank, banking sector uh, paying out more, uh, issuing more new debt than it takes back in debt repayment. 
Uh, so all these, and you can also have the increase in the rate of turnover of money. And in this sort of situation, that's what you get. And, and again, let's talk about another non-MMT experiment back in the 1930s. Uh, the town of Wargel in Austria accepted the ideas of uh, uh, Silvio Gazelle about the desirability of having a money stock which actually depreciated unless it was used and instituted their own domestic script uh, recognised in the town of Wargel that uh, enable people to pay using that tax script rather than paying using the almost non-existent mark at the time. Uh, and the result was that, that that town went from 25% unemployment to zero very rapidly and was only shut down by indeed the central bank intervening and making their process illegal. Uh, so you can have this expansion and overall activity. Um, so it, it, I don't think there's any problems about, and certainly in, in, in the current circumstances as well, with the level of private debt we've got, there's no room to put the interest rate up. And the other argument from MMT is the central bank sets the interest rate at the short run anyway. It can't control the long end, but it does control the short end. And that, that means you don't get that um, you know the inflation is not a, is not a not a lay down reserve. Put it that way, right? But I mean, the long end is is an expectation of what's going to happen. You know, from the acti- the short term activities over a period of time. So in, yeah. in a way, they're still they're, they're still, still influenced. Sure. They're yeah. still controlling it, aren't they? But the other the other area where you know you could see because um, this would be my concern in all of this. I'd be I'm really behind the idea, obviously, of of, of trying to solve save the planet. I quite I quite like that idea for my kids, for example. But um, but I would like to see it being done in a way where it isn't just a central planned result. I do feel like we've got to make sure that the public sector is involved in 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 this. So if it's not the you know if the if the government it, yeah the private sector I should say mm-hmm. so and it, and isn't there danger also as, aside from you know whether who can get access to the to the capital uh, however that's distributed isn't there also the the danger that you've got a big project, a government project, uh, suppliers are always going to charge a premium for that because it's the government, particularly if you hear that the government can print money, in effect. You're going to go, well, wow, I don't need to sharpen my pencil on this. I'm going to you know, charge over the odds, which means anybody else who's trying to do anything in competition or complementary in the private sector to what the government's doing is going to find that they just can't afford to pay the prices that suppliers are charging because they are always going to sell to the government because they're going to get a better price. Well, this is actually another thing that happened during the, the Great the Second World War, not the Great Depression. You didn't need to in the Great Depression, but there was rationing. And uh, it's too early. Obviously, we're talking about uh, using mm. the MMT now to uh, start building some of the infrastructure we need to reduce the carbon content of our energy. Um, that is something you can do now. You certainly can't do rationing, but I fully expect rationing to happen in the future. So, uh, But that's what stopped them being inflation during the Second World War. There were price controls. And uh, it, it's intriguing how much the American uh, professional, not just not academic, but professional uh, world of economists learned during the Second World War because all the stuff they were told to worry about, about like runaway inflation, uh, like the fact that price controls won't work, yada, 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 they're all contradicted. They found they could run a huge deficit. In fact, the scale of the uh, American deficit in 1943 was 25% of GDP. Uh, mm. enormous scale of spending and that um, that spending didn't cause an inflation surge all the stuff that we're told to worry about didn't happen and the price controls actually worked the rationing worked. but again that's partly because it was seen as an existential threat yeah which we you know which we haven't recognized yet yeah. and the danger is that you, the moment you start talking about 
uh, rationing or price controls, you are again starting to get back into a sort of a, a central planning type ethos, which yeah. people will then say, "Hey, we're not communists yet." Yeah, well, I mean, what you can do with the, the government doesn't have to spend the money it creates. The government can decide to run a deficit and then and enable that, you know, give that money to the private sector to spend. So, for example, one of the easiest, we're talking outside climate change, one of the easiest ways for the government to create money into the economy and not have it deciding how that money is spent is to give it to good students, pay for education, and then let the students spend the money. And that's what used to happen, but it certainly happens still in countries like the Netherlands, for example, where education is free, and in Germany. So in, in those countries, money part of the money creation by the government uh, is, is not spent by the government. It's spent by the recipients of government spending itself, who are the people, who government um, uh, welfare payments. Mm. Um, and then you could do exactly the same thing in the in the. Well, the students or not, you could actually just give grants out, couldn't yeah, you? Yeah, that's could say, well, okay. Yeah. Mm. And like for example, I, I, you need an enormous uh, the scale at which you need to lay out um, uh, renewable energy sources, basically solar and and wind. The scale is needed to replace the currently coal-based, uh, predominantly coal-based and oil-based uh, energy production system we use is gigantic. I've seen calculations of anywhere between needing 300 megawatts and 1,000 megawatts of power per per year to be added. Sorry, pardon me, per day, per day. Mm. Um, okay, again, I, I've seen this from a range of different engineers, so I, I haven't sat down and so done the detailed looking at it myself. But that's the scale of conversion that they argue is necessary. So that is a, an enormous amount of money creation. Uh, but you also want to have some innovation going on. You want to have more efficient solar cells. You want to have lighter uh, wind turbines, or maybe you have wind turbine farms, which are, uh, there's arguments about, uh, not, not the giant blades we're used to now, but ones which are like spinning spindles at ground level, which are less efficient than the individual large towers, but in a collective sense, they can be more efficient. You can actually have a like a 10 metre high wind farm where uh, you get about a 10% boost in energy over what you'd have if you had the high towers in the same land area. Um, so you want those innovations to happen. You want that to be still taking place. And partially that will come out of the government sector. Of course, again, an enormous amount of innovation occurred during the Second World War uh, in, in government in government departments, but a large part also occurred in the private sector. And you want to have a combination of the two. Right. Okay, we're going to leave it there, but we are going to revisit this because I've got many more questions about how this could work in practice. It's been, you know, I think we've covered quite a bit of ground in the last half an hour. But mm. Ra- Randall Ray's idea is a Green New Deal, 5% of GDP. So in effect, it means the government is running into deficit equivalent to 5% of GDP at least. And the expectation is that this is going to free up resources for us to deal with the climate change issue. And we've talked about some of the problems that could be overcome, including in particular how we make sure that that, uh, that there's innovation happening within the private sector and it's not just a centrally planned approach from the government. I've got more. I want to talk more about how this can be internationalised because, of course, you know, we've talked in the past about one of the controls or one of the limitations of MMT is that perhaps it only applies in a small number of countries. So I want to talk about that more next time. But uh, that's a good start. Thanks, Steve. You're welcome. Because the thing is, uh, you've got to be a sovereign currency, haven't you, for MMT to work. And one big part of the world, Europe, uh, they don't have sovereign currencies. A whole bunch of countries all working under the euro. So how would they apply the Green New Deal principles using MMT? That and countries in Africa, for example. We'll look at all of that next time on the Debunking Economics Podcast with Professor Steve Keane. I'm Phil Dobby. We'll see you back here for that one.
Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy the Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search the Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.